Hello everyone, and welcome to the Shaped Ideas Podcast. I am your host, Sam, and today we've got a little, little different episode for you. Uh, today I'm going to do a book review, and uh, just a basic rundown of kind of how I'm going to run it is, um, I'm going to give a brief synopsis about it, or about, about what, the mo- what the book is, um, go over some excerpts in the book, I'll try to avoid spoilers, but... Um, if it's pretty pertinent or something that I really want to talk about, I'll probably spoil it, but, um, in this book, it kind of doesn't matter considering the book is damn near a hundred, hundred years old. So, um, without further ado, I'll, oh, and, um, I'll probably try and keep it to about an hour like the normal podcasts are, but, uh, it'll either run a little bit short or a little bit long, depending on how much I want to talk about the book. Um, I'd like to do this about once a month. Uh, that's usually what I try and do is read a book a month. Um, so I'll probably try and put uh, one book review out every month. Um, so without further ado, let's uh, jump right into it. So the book that I read, uh, the book I read was called, or is called uh, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. And I'm sure everyone has heard it before. Um, and it's probably being read quite a bit, at least in today's political climate. I guess maybe not today's political climate, but um, more so just what's going on with uh, the virus, with COVID-19, coronavirus, SARS-2, CCP virus, SARS. Jeez, there's like a hundred names for it now, but, but yeah, so... Um, I decided that I'd read this. It's been on my list to read forever, though. But I really thought that now um, I kind of push it to the top of my list. I have a I had a goal set this year to uh, read one book a month. And I actually scheduled them all out. And I'm kind of analytical like that where I would, um, I had kind of have to jot my goals down. But then I also kind of have to show a means of how I'm going to get there or else, for the most part, they won't get done. So... I'm sure a lot of other people do that too, but so this book was slated for me to read in June, but with all the time that I've had on my hands with this, uh, I decided to move some stuff around and I decided to just push this to the front of the line and read it now. So, but liberty, as we all know, cannot flourish in a country that is permanently on a war footing or even a near war footing. Permanent crisis justifies permanent control of everybody and everything by the agencies of the central government. And permanent crisis is what we have to expect in a world in which overpopulation is producing a state of things, in which dictatorship under communist auspices become almost inevitable. That was an excerpt from the forward page, or from the forward, and... I wanted to put it in here because it was very, I don't want to say shocking, but it was a little kind of eye-opening, um, and it was, it just kind of rang true of kind of what is going on right now, and that also kind of comes back to why I wanted to read this book now. Um, I've talked about it a bunch of the other podcasts that I worry about the government um, taking freedoms and liberties from us during this virus, and then uh not giving them back and that is kind of what they talk about in that excerpt right there is 
with a crisis happening, like dictatorship is inevitable because while the people are occupied with the crisis, the central government takes the stronghold of your rights. So this book is pretty interesting and it's pretty messed up and I don't think it's what a lot of people think the book is and it's definitely not what I thought the book was. Not in a good or a bad way per se, just it wasn't what I was expecting. Um, so I've read 1984 and everyone always puts Brave New World in 1984 kind of in the same category, almost like the same book. And so I kind of came in thinking that this book was going to be very similar, uh, kind of like with the with the aspects of like, oh, Big Brother, um, them bearing down on you, watching over you constantly, like controlling your every move. And it's not like that. Um, in this book, in this book, it is a lot different. It's it's more so like if 1984 had evolved or like the society that was in 1984 had evolved. That's kind of how I see Brave New World in a way. So um, this has a weird dating scheme. It's not like our, um, or not dating scheme, but a calendar scheme. So it's like AC945 or something like that. And so I'm not even gonna get into when this book was like, what year or whatever, because they have their own, um, system for that but assume that it's like way in the future so basically the book it's of like an advanced civilization in a way so this book starts out in the first chapter um with a uh director giving a tour to some i believe they were college students yeah they were giving a tour to a group of students and it led through this uh, place called the Central London Hatchery and Conditioning Center. And this is where all the babies are born in London. In this book, that's where this book takes place is in London. Or at least that's where it starts. It, it goes uh, to South America, I believe, for a little bit and then comes back. But for the most part, this whole, this whole um, book is kind of centered in London, in the surrounding areas. So... Um, the the group of students get led around these different batches of embryos at different age times and they age them based on meters um and at each um stop in the meter category and they have different ones they do different things to each embryo and in this book there is no mom or dad it's just uh people so they grow up through the government system and they grow up learning basically the same things and then they are put in kind of pre-classified roles and that comes back to the embryo analysis so in, during each meter set uh, specific embryos are fertilized and specific embryos are given certain um, certain like fluids and alcohols to classify them into certain casts and they have this whole caste system, and it's, um, I believe, five castes. It's, and it goes based on Greek letters. It's Alpha, Beta, uh, shoot, what were the other ones? 
it's alpha, beta, let's see, epsilon, and then I think there were a couple others, but those were the three, those are the three big ones that they talk about, is alpha, beta, and epsilon, um, but I believe there's five casts in the entire book, or that they talk about, but those are the three that they, that they talk about the most, um, so, yeah, so it's alpha, beta, and then um, something, and then delta and epsilon. So there's a, a C class as well, so it goes those five. Um, and alpha, obviously, the highest cast, and then epsilon is the lowest cast. And they break these up based on intelligence. Um, they don't base it on physical strength or anything like that. So it's like alpha is considered the most intelligent, the most smart, uh, the most handsome. They get the best genes I guess you could say they they get the best treatment during their um, fertilization process whereas the epsilons are not they are given um, like certain alcohols and certain fluids to like dumb down the fertilization process and then they're also deprived of oxygen um, and they talk about it in the book saying that they uh, they deprive them of oxygen when they are in the embryo stage in order to make them reach adulthood faster. So, and that's, and that doesn't increase their intelligence by any means, but that's not the scientist's goal. It's for, and these are for the Epsilon cast. It's for the Epsilon cast to reach adulthood faster so they can get in the workforce faster because that's really what they are meant to be doing in this book and in the eyes of the government. And it's, <laughs> it definitely is a weird way to begin. Let me let me tell you, it was really weird. Um, in the uh, second chapter, and I'm not going to go chapter by chapter, but I'm in this book. I jotted down a bunch of notes um, because this they, this book had a lot going on. Um, it had a lot of interesting language, and I just wanted to make sure that I got it all down. So. And for the most part, there aren't really spoilers for this. It's kind of just how it moves. I mean, there's like a big spoiler at the end, and I'm not going to break that. But um, for the most part, I'm going to talk about pretty much everything in the book. So in Chapter 2, they'll grow up with what the psychologist used to call an instinctive hatred of books and flowers. Reflexes unalterably conditioned. They'll be safe from books and botany all their lives. The director turns to his nurses, take them away. So this was an excerpt from the second chapter in regards to the director was showing the students and they were continuing from chapter one to chapter two was leading the students around. Um, and they were showing the students these delta or uh, epsilon. Yes, they were showing the younger group. So they were um, they were showing them all the different kids in the different groups: uh, alpha, beta, epsilon, uh, gamma, and delta. That's what it was. It was gamma. So it's so it goes alpha, beta, delta, gamma, epsilon. I believe is the caste system. So they were showing. Uh, Epsilon children they were doing a test and the test was they brought all these kids in and 
Uh, they brought all these kids into a room and they had them pick up books and flowers. And when they did, they would they had a, an electric field system in the floor and they would turn the floor on and they would shock them. And the psychologist says that they'll they'll grow up. They hate those two things. And they um, what the director is doing is programming the babies to hate books, thus continuing or thus not continuing to learn and relying on propaganda relied by the government like the director or and people like the director. So that was why they were doing that. They were showing the students what the process was for doing this or why they were doing this and what the process looked like and, and how they were able to manipulate these children into doing what they want in the in the um, scheme of like what they were what they wanted to accomplish as a society long term and that's just they and they go into it a little bit more and they say that um, they found out early on in this process or when they were just kind of fiddling with how to manipulate people in early stages in order to get them to do different things in their adulthood they found out that people who are the um, the epsilons loved flowers they first when they first started they, they wanted them to love flowers because they wanted them to have something to live for in, in a way they wanted them to have something that they enjoyed that they liked um, because that brought up morale that brought up happiness and that made people better workers but they said that too many people were taking um, trips to the outskirts of town to see all the flowers bloom and that was taxing on the transit um, infrastructure that they had in place so what they did was they just bred their enjoyment of flowers out of them basically so that's pretty ridiculous <laughs> it's pretty crazy it's but that's what they do in this society they they mold human beings to fill the exact role that they predetermined them to be before they were even born. Till at last, the child's mind in these suggestions and the sum of the suggestions is the child's mind and not the child's mind only. The adult's mind, too, all his life, all his life long. The mind that judges and desires and decides made up these suggestions but all these suggestions are not suggestions. The director also shouted in his triumph, suggestions from the state, he banged the nearest table. And this is another excerpt from the chapter, just kind of further solidifying that, what I was just saying, that these, these human beings, these people, are not making any decisions of their own free will in, in a way. They, and that's, Honestly, that's kind of the difference that I felt between 1984 and this book. The people in this book feel free. They feel like they live in a free free society. They feel like the government is doing what they're supposed to be doing. They feel, they don't feel like they're a bird trapped in a cage. In 1984, everyone feels like they're in a cage. Everyone knows. It's like being in North Korea. Like 1984 is like living in North Korea. The people in North Korea knows how bad know how bad it is. They know the propaganda that they're being given is bullcrap. They know that their government is a tyrannical state that like will just kill anybody if they don't do what they tell them. They know these things, but they keep their mouth shut and they run the course because that's all they can do. And that's kind of what 1984 is. Everyone knows 
for the most part, what's going on, but they can't do anything about it because of how under control they are. So they just go with the flow and they hope that they never get their thoughts read. But in this book, everyone feels free. Everyone feels like what they're doing is of their free will. And everyone feels that because this has been going on and this has kind of been pro it's been programmed, literally programmed into everybody to view all these things that the government has done and put in place as normal, as how things go, as as just, as ethical, as as all these things. They they view them as to be correct, as a societal norm. And I think that that is definitely the biggest takeaway and the biggest difference from that. I'll, or that's the biggest takeaway from this book is that these people have been so programmed by what the government has given them that they believe that they're free when they're not. And then that's the biggest difference between this book and 1984 is that everyone in the book feels free compared to in 1984. So, um, Chapter 2, in a nutshell, it's short. It talks about the director continuing to show the students around the facility and how they brainwash and condition babies at birth to think a certain way. Chapter 3, um, you're shown the effects of the brainwashing on the population. People in the book accept social norms and a matter of fact, or as a matter of fact, not questioning the, the moral implications of these actions. The advancement of their society has stripped the freedom of the common sense person. And from the looks of it, um, people in the book, other than the narrator, are okay with it. And uh, ending is better than mending. And that was a brainwashing slogan that they repeat multiple times in, in this book. Not just this chapter, but this book. Um, and I'll go over more... more uh, of these propaganda slogans because they go over them a lot and a lot of uh, characters in the book both use different slogans multiple times and they go over why uh, a little bit further which I'll get into in a minute but uh, new as the book progresses uh, after you get past um, the main beginning which is um the that a director leading students around um once you get past that it's a couple chapters uh you get introduced to some new characters and they're it's lenina bernard marx and henry and i find it very hilarious that you've got a guy named marx and he's like one of the main characters and he uh, actually believes that he doesn't feel free and that he's kind of stuck in a rut and he wants to do something else and something different and something against the government and against social norms and he doesn't feel free and that kind of gets him into a little bit of hot water so i just but i do find it funny that you've got a guy named marx who is kind of disavowing these these uh these government uh like overreaches that are very kind of like socialist communists. So I just thought that was, I thought that was kind of funny. I don't know if the author did that on purpose or, or what, but so you got these three characters and uh, Bernard, like I kind of just said, he's seen as an outcast. Um, 
in this in the first couple chapters when you're shown the uh, fertilization and the embryo process um, all babies are given certain chemicals during that process and uh, depending on which caste system you're in you get certain stuff um, so Bernard Marx he's an alpha but he's not the same height as all the other alphas and that's another thing you kind of read you find out in the book everyone basically looks the same based on their caste so and also everyone that's a low caste dresses a certain color and I believe it was like gamma's dressing khaki um, and epsilon's get like green or something um, so he also so back to back to Bernard Marx um, he's also got like other defects and it makes him less desirable and it's giving him terrible insecurities and the reason for that is they they messed up in his fertilization process. I mean, they, they rumor in the book multiple times that they say like someone gave him alcohol when they shouldn't have and that stunted his growth and made him not look as attractive as the other alphas. Um, so, but none of that's been proved, obviously. Uh, but the, that leads him to think differently about life, about kind of like what's going on, like why did I... Like if everyone's the same and everyone's supposed to act the same and everyone's got their different caste systems and everyone's supposed to act within them, why am I, for some odd reason, uh, been singled out with these with these defects when we're supposed to live in a world where the government kind of clears us of these defects? And that causes them to kind of think differently about life and how, uh, how, how they go about things in the book and, and what, what he himself has to offer the world. And that leads him to ask uh, very like unsavory questions about what's going on with the system and about the government. Um, and when he was on a date with Lenina, uh, the questions kind of start to startle him and it leads to him losing his job because he feels like he's enslaved to his programming. And he talks about that a lot during the date and Lenina kind of gets startled and word travels fast in this. It's... They never outright say that they're being listened to, these uh, characters, but I have a feeling they probably are, or at least they've got uh, people who work for the central government that kind of follow people around or are in certain areas to listen to see if things are happening. So, um, yeah, he feels like he's become a slave to what he's doing. And that's like a big character development in, um, I guess I, I, maybe I shouldn't say character development. It was kind of like almost preconceived in this, in his character when you met him. Because you didn't really know him beforehand, but, um, sorry, getting another sip of coffee. Uh, so in this, in this book, there is, or throughout this book, characters take what's called grams. And they're referring to just an illicit drug that is given to them from from the government. And some will call it rations. Uh, they call them gram rations. And, um, or well, they say grams, but then they, they, they further elaborate. Uh, they call it soma. And they don't really define what soma does. But from what they've kind of said or what they kind of alluded to is basically it's like LSD is what my guess would be is it's basically LSD because people take it when they are feeling sad or depressed or angry or, or whatever 
they're not in a good mood, they're not in a good state of mind, so they take it to feel better, and they go on trips, basically. And that's kind of what LSD is. So, um, uh, yeah, so it's used to combat unwanted emotions is what the government refers to it as, or as what they kind of market it as in a way. So sadness, depression, guilt, sorrow, all those are, you, you use SOMA to combat those unwanted emotions. Um, and from what I'm understanding in the book, uh, it's being used by the populace, in a, or it's used to keep the populace in a constant state of bliss, and it results in no need for an uprising against a pre-established system of how things are conducted. So, and that is kind of like, kind of shocking. Or it's kind of interesting because it basically, for what I read into that, is it's it's like a metaphor for what goes on in our lives um, today. And like in America, it's you've got plenty of events, plenty of things, plenty of flashing lights to kind of keep you occupied and keep you happy and not in these sad states. And, but the only difference is like in the book, it's all like, this is rationed out by the government, whereas there's not a lot of um, like government programs. I guess there is kind of government programs to kind of keep you out of that, but they don't really make you feel better. <laughs> I guess, I don't know. I kind of drew, what I kind of drew out this from like a metaphor stance standpoint for what's going on in real life is like the government giving you happiness giving you the means of being happy rather than you going out and doing it so i guess that can kind of be like a metaphor for like welfare or or like food stamps or something like that i guess um but i guess not really though because i mean i don't know how i don't know how happy people on food stamps are i'm sure they'd rather just be working for themselves but or working or having their own job to be able to pay for that stuff rather than being on the government dime. Uh, so there's not much of it, but like there's, there's a, in a worse society. Like if you think if like the government into, in our, in our reality, in our world got worse and they kind of put their thumb over us even more and they wanted to control our emotions. That's kind of where that would come from is they would start they would start either giving out something like this or they would use something to distract us to make us feel better and be in a better mood, which would make us work better. Um, other with other than that, the uh, the other thing that I kind of caught in this were um, the what I caught in this was the big parallels in social distancing. So during the um, during the date between Lenina and Bernard, there's a lot of things that Lenina shows in social conditioning that Bernard really hates and has grown to hate. Um, and a lot of the statements she constantly just like says over and over again. And it's almost like she says it just to make herself feel better, not to like push the conversation she's having with him further or anything. It's to like just try and shut things down and get him to stop talking. <laughs> And uh, it makes you wonder if all the common vernacular that we instill in ourselves are, this is what I took away from it when I was uh, reading this chapter and reading this part of the book. Um, when Pete, when she was constantly saying these things over and over and over again, um, I kind of drew from that. It's like, I, it made me wonder um, if our common vernacular that we instill in ourselves and we put into our children are 
our, our actual thoughts or is it something that we've just been conditioned to believe ourselves? It's almost, it was almost kind of like I was thinking, uh, are we gaslighting ourselves basically? Are we, are we taking something because it's been instilled in us so much? Are we taking that as truth even though it's false? Like, you know, the old sayings, like you can't have your cake and eat it too. Like those types of sayings have, we've been instilled in those sayings or they are our actual thoughts and, and how we are feeling about a situation or are they just the social phrases that we have instilled in ourselves and have been so pushed into our brain that they're not our actual thoughts, but we think they are. And that was very creepy for me to think about. I don't, I try not to believe that <laughs> because I mean, there's a difference between like some of the phrases that they put in here because they're pretty overt and I'll talk about them in a minute. Um, they're pretty overt compared to you can't have your cake and eat it too, but there is a parallel there. Um, so this book really makes you think. It makes you question not only authority, but it also kind of makes you question the very fabric that you're, uh, that you're made to believe um, are your own morals and ideals. You, it just makes you question things. It makes you think more critically. That's what this book, if anything, I think that's what this book is trying to accomplish. Um, it wants the reader to start thinking critically about things about the government. It wants it to, you to think critically about your own thoughts, about what you're doing, about what you want. That's what this book, I think, is trying to portray. It wants you to think critically about what is going on around you, your your awareness of things, what makes you happy, like your emotions, what makes you happy, what makes you sad, about what the government's doing. Um, is it are they kind of committing this sleight of hand where they, they take your freedom away for a little bit of time, but then you know they're not going to give it back. Like they want you to think critically about things. And I, that's really what this book is trying to hammer in. Because a lot of these like metaphors, like I'm a pretty dense person, but even I was able to catch a lot of stuff in this book. I'm sure if I reread it or I was a little more nuanced or I could catch pick up on other things, I would pick up on a boatload of other stuff about this book. But... um. So here are, I have a list, Just, um, here are a bunch of the social conditioning phrases that is kind of hammered into these characters. Um, the one I already said before, better to mend, or better to end than mend, and that refers to basically saying if something's broken, just buy something new rather than trying to fix it, and that, like, that's just trying to get people to buy things and everything's run by the government in this book. So they don't want people to, they want people to spend money and that keeps the economy going. So they want people to continue to spend money rather than to save it and fix something. So like if you have a torn shirt, rather than just sewing it back together, um, just throw it away and get a new one. Progress is lovely is another one. And that one, that one's pretty self-explanatory. That one is just like a social conditioning and saying of predisposing people to assume that the progress that they're going towards, that society is going towards and that the government is going towards is going to, is lovely. So it could be really bad, but people are going to perceive it as lovely because they've been hammered in their head that progress is lovely. They, you know, like, um, it's like in our world, 
where they like people don't take well to change. You hear that about old people all the time. Like, oh, they don't they don't do well with change. It's kind of the opposite with this phrase. Excuse me, with this phrase. People have been programmed in this book and in this reality to love progress no matter what. So the government has control and they have more of a free will to kind of do what they want with society and how they want to mold it because they know that um, the society and the people within it are going to adapt to it fast and they're going to take it as fact and move forward with it without any uprising or without any commotion. Um, another one is never put off till tomorrow the fun you can have today. And I don't fully understand this one, but if I had to draw something from it, it would be that it's basically saying kind of shoot your shot today. Don't, don't wait for a better opportunity. And I think this is kind of like, this may, this may be used for the government to push people more towards um, their impulses and to satisfy those like synapses, like the dopamine that you get, the dopamine rush when you when you do something, do something fun. Um, they're like programming the people to do that every single day to keep them in that constant state of bliss. So I think that's kind of what they're trying to say with that and kind of keep the people happy all the time. Like, don't, don't be sad today when, uh, don't be sad today for what you're doing tomorrow. Just do it today and tomorrow and the day after. Like, that's kind of what I think they're programming in the people is to just do the things that you want to do. There's no repercussions anyway, so let's just keep doing it. Um, the last one that I wrote down, and there's a bunch in the book, but these are these four were the ones that I thought were the most important. Um, everybody's happy nowadays. And that was said by Lenina during uh, their talk with Bernard, or during her talk with Bernard, um, when he was saying that he was feeling enslaved to uh, what he's doing and what he's been programmed. And she's, that's what she said. She said, everybody's happy nowadays. And... Um, what I took from this, uh, this was kind of heavy for me, at least, or I felt heavy when I read that. And the reason I did was because in the book, if you're thinking about it, if you're living in this society, if you say, if you've been programmed that everybody's happy nowadays, you just assume that everything, or that if you're unhappy, so you're doing something wrong and you need to go be happy. So it kind of pushes people to stay in this constant state of happiness and not feeling other emotions because feeling other emotions is seen as bad. And that's where the soma comes in, where the like the LSD, the, the mind altering drug to make you feel happy. So if you're not feeling happy, you just take that. And then eventually when it wears off, you will feel happy. And this I really felt was or what what it reminded me of in our world and what it reminded me of is uh, what a lot of news outlets say some people are saying. That's what it reminded me of. Cause it like how it felt when Lenina was saying it, she was using the term or she was using that phrase 
almost as a way to establish weight and validity to what she was feeling and what she was trying to say to Bernard. And that reminded me of the some people are saying, because a lot of news outlets um, and a lot of news outlets and media and TV uh, stations will say some people are saying as a way to establish weight and validity to a story. When in reality, it might just be some angry dude on Twitter that has an egg emoji and that has like an egg icon that has two followers. Like there's, you don't actually know when, when, when a news outlet is saying some people are saying, you don't actually know. They don't tell you like who's talking about it or, or, or anything like that. So that was kind of how I, I drew that big parallel between those two phrases. Cause you hear that all the time. If you listen to the news or you read it, they'll always say that like, oh, some people are saying X. And it, when you hear that, you instinctively think, oh, well, then it must be true or it must be agreeable or like it must be part of the majority. And that's what that that phrase in the book is trying to portray. Everybody's happy nowadays. The majority of people are everybody and in everybody is happy, which means you need to be happy. It's almost, and it, that comes back to the some people are saying. Some people are saying, which means you should be saying. It's kind of like that that weird, sly conditioning that they do. And I don't know if I'm kind of stumbling down the rabbit hole or I'm overthinking it, but those are the parallels that I caught from it. And I don't think that the media is trying to, like, condition you to think a certain way or, like, by saying some people are saying. I think they're just saying that because they want it to be a story when it may not be. But they put that in there to make it sound like it's got more weight and more validity and more people are talking about it than are actually talking about it. That way it doesn't sound like, oh, we found this one argument on social media and we're going to talk about it for 10 minutes on the news because we'd have nothing else to talk about. I think that's more so why they use that phrase. But like, if things could get worse or if, they're really, if they really were thinking nefariously, that's kind of what I would imagine they were doing it for. Um... Further down in the book, um, so throughout the book, they talk about the relationships, and in this society, relationships are kind of just seen as non-existent in a way. Like you have friendships, of course, and people that you care about. You don't really have people you care about. It's it's such a weird dichotomy. So you've got like friends that you talk with. Um, so there's uh, Bernard and then there's um, his friend that he talks to a lot. And, but in terms of like sexual relationships, there is, so there is no marriage. People don't get married. Um, you pretty much just hook up. It's just a big, that's what the culture is. Everyone just hooks up and it's seen that's it's seen as normal that's what you're supposed to do like you don't like no one has babies they you just you have a relationship you go on a date you have sex and you just do that with multiple people and from the sound of it in the book it sounds like pretty much everybody has sex with like 100 people <laughs> so that is like another like kind of tidbit about how this like civilized society is uh seen and how they how they do things so it's there really is no marriage there's no relationship and there's also no religion 
And I think that's kind of, that kind of like leads into the no marriage thing. And that's how they were able to get away with having no marriages. There is no religion that people think of. And they talk about it a little bit more. Um, like they, there's subtle implications of maybe like a deity or a religion. But they say our Ford. You know, like when you used to play like, oh God. Or, um, oh, for God's sake. You hear those kind of statements being said in our our uh, society but in this one you say like oh for ford's sake so they say ford and um that is like the top person in the government is ford so they say like oh for ford's sake oh ford like they that is the top person so they basically kind of treat him as the god even though he's he's like a he's a person just like all of everyone else but they treat him like a god um this uh so like through the book you start to realize how the civil civilized society views others um it also you begin to see how reliant people get in this world on uh, soma to deal with their problems like people are desperately trying to avoid bad thoughts um and they're literally drowning it out with drugs and that's what lenina does Lenina, when she's not feeling good, um, when she has, she had a, she goes on a handful of dates with uh, Bernard and a majority of them lead with her feeling sad and she goes home and she just drowns herself out with drugs and she just takes a bunch of Soma and she passes out and feels better. And that's really weird. That's just how this society views that you need to behave and how you need to deal with your problems you don't think about them you don't try and reflect on them or like what you did or how you could have been better or, or what you can do to avoid those bad thoughts you just you drown them out you don't think about them you stuff them down you just you just push forward and you just take the soma to feel better and then you just don't think about it again uh continuing down as you get further in the book, uh, Bernard and Lena, Lenina. So Lenina is very intrigued by Bernard because he's different. Um, so she kind of actively pursues him more. And this leads to um, them having a vacation together. And because Bernard is very high in the totem pole in his job, he gets to go places that others can't or others don't want to. So Bernard chooses to go to a reservation uh, where what they call savages and for us that would be like Native Americans um, or like distant tribes that aren't part of civilization like our quote-unquote civilization um, so they so they choose to go to this reservation to see these people <clears throat> um, and during that time she's they go there and she they get to the reservation um, and she realizes that she hates it because it's not clean it's dirty like the people are uncivilized they don't really speak the same language they they're dirty like they live in they live in huts they're they're savages in in her eyes and she's even more distraught because she didn't bring any soma with her so she is forced to deal with all of her thoughts rather than just escape them and unfortunately this is kind of like one pitfall in the book 
this does basically nothing for her character. Like, I really thought when we were going to, or going into that specific part of the book, that we would get some character development from her. That she would, like, kind of start feeling more like Bernard, where she's, you would think that she would start to feel enslaved to her programming because she would start to think more and, like, think that they're not so bad and realize that, like, oh, she shouldn't drown out her bad thoughts because they lead to good thoughts. But no, that, that never happens. She just kind of stays angry and wants to leave and i think they do end up leaving early they leave the reservation early because she just she can't handle it she doesn't want to be there she doesn't want to think about anything um so they leave but before they leave they um end up getting permission from like the head honcho back in london to bring two savages back to research and um the two people or the two savages that they bring back is called John. They, their names are John and Linda. And Linda was actually someone in society before they, she was part of like the London society forever ago. They don't really state, but I'm guessing probably like 20 or 30 years prior. And she went to the reservation and she ended up staying. And I don't remember. I don't know if they said, or if I just don't remember, but she, was left there or stranded or whatever and she stayed there with them and she basically had to like acclimate to um the society that she was now put in which was on the reservation um and john is actually her kid she gave birth to john and um so she was an outsider to this this uh, society on the reservation because she carried the beliefs that were instilled in her in london and on the reservation, things are obviously different. Things on the reservation are a lot like how we view things today. They they believe in a God. They believe in marriage. They believe in children. And a lot of the things that we as a society view as correct and, and how things should go. And um, the that is definitely not how she believes. And she went in thinking what she believed. And she was duly reprimanded. So... Um, John, like halfway through the book, John kind of tells a story about watching his mom uh, get beaten by other women because uh, Linda is sleeping with all of the husbands. Because in in London, that's just normal. That's how things go. You just you sleep with anyone, anytime. Um, and in in the, on the reservation, that isn't seen. That's not the views that they hold. They they view marriage. They view it as marriage. They as a relationship, as modesty. You don't see, you don't do that. Um, and that's been completely abolished in in the new world in London. And um, it's pretty. It's like weird. It's weird to see things like reverse because like there's. What's what's weird? It's it's kind of like how you would how you would view people who have an, an advanced idea of the world of where things could be, and people want to hold it back. So like in a way, it's almost like you like in like an older conservative sense is kind of what the reservation has in this i in this whole like ideology of the book. Like the, like London is super progressive and they've super advanced, whereas like the reservation is is conservative and they hold on to beliefs that are hundreds if not thousands of years old and uh 
it's just like it's strange this whole book is strange and it, it kind of flips things on its head but in a way that you wouldn't expect i guess is what i'm trying to say um the greater a man's talent the greater his power to lead astray it is better it is better that one should suffer than that many should be corrupted consider the matter dispassionately mr foster you will see that no offense is so heinous as unorthodoxy of behavior murder kills only the individual and after all what is an individual with a sweeping gesture he indicated the rows of microscopes the test tubes the incubators we can make a new one with the greatest ease as many as we like unorthodoxy threatens more than the life of a mere individual it strikes at society itself yes at society itself and this is um an excerpt from chapter 10 in the book and that i had to highlight that part of the book so for quick clarification first uh mr foster his first name is henry and he is the director that was leading the people the students around um so just a quick clarification the person talking to him was mustafa mond and he is like the head person for london he's like the head the head honcho of the london um district or country or whatever um so he is like the top guy and um he was they were talking about um john i believe and i had to highlight this part of the book just because of like kind of how that what he's portraying and what he's saying He's, they're saying that the individual doesn't matter. It's really the progression of society that matters. So it's like he's giving a, kind of a very fluffed version of basically saying society matters more than the people and thoughts matter more than the people. People are expendable. Thoughts can linger and in, in, uh, inflect or infect infect more people which in turn affects more people whereas an individual you can just kill off an individual and that'll be it it's like cutting off the trunk of a tree like you kill the person and like you chop the head off the snake the snake's dead type of thing but with a thought it like it's like a root system it, it burrows down into more and more people so it's that's kind of like a, a little bit of um an homage with what 1984 talks about whereas like thoughts are more deadly than the person itself so that's what they're trying to say in that. And I just, I really had to, <laughs> I had to um, bring that up. Um, fine. So as the book progresses, uh, John, which is basically referred to as the savage going forward once he enters society. So he enters society um, and Bernard, who brought him there, and then the savage basically becomes celebrities overnight at this point. Um and bernard got what he desired he the whole throughout the whole book one of the one of the things that led to his insecurity is that he was not popular um, his deficiencies led him to not be really wanted by women so he really hated that but now that he's got this new celebrity status with bringing the savage back um he's desired by all the women he can have whatever woman he wants he is super popular he's getting all the dates like all the attention um so he gets that and then lenina 
uh, starts to gain an attraction for the savage and they end up going on a date together. Um, and Lenina, uh, in present terms, uh, she's thirsting for him really hard, which I thought was kind of funny. Uh, so she's trying really hard to court him into bed and he's resisting heavily. He's, you know, he's part of that old mindset from the reservation. Like you, you go on dates, you, you like live together, you do, you, you get married. Like he's part of that old idea, ideology in the book. And, uh, he doesn't want to, cause he knows where it's leading down. He knows that Lenina just wants to have sex. She doesn't like really care about him per se. She just kind of wants the experience. Uh, and then this chapter, this chapter 11, this chapter ends, it seems like the savage is going to give in. Uh, but then right when you think that's about to happen, he closes the door, um, on the opportunity and Lenina is left to be sad and she consumes three ha half grams of soma and in this regard that's a lot so she's sad she didn't get what she wanted and in her social programming she always gets what she wants so <clears throat> so the, it's uh it's Because because our world is not the same, the same as Othello's world, you can't make flivers without steel, and you can't make tragedies without social instability. The world's stable now. People are happy. They get what they want, and they never want what they can't get. They're well off. They're safe. They're never ill. They're not afraid of death. They're blissfully ignorant of passion and old age. They're plagued, but no mother or fathers. They've got no wives or children, or lovers to feel strongly about. They're so conditioned that they practically can't help behaving as they're ought to behave. And if anything should go wrong, they're Soma. Would you go and chuck out the window in the name of liberty, Mr. Savage? Liberty, he laughed. Expecting Deltas to know what liberty is. And now expecting them to understand Othello, my good boy. So we've reached the end, kind of the end of the the um, the book. So the last three chapters are kind of like all span is like just one large chapter, basically. Um, <clears throat> they uh, so that excerpt is from chapter sixteen, and there's eighteen chapters, uh, but it's very like it just kind of further solidifies what you are. Um, picking up throughout this book, which is people are being socially conditioned. Um, people don't have their own thoughts. Uh, people aren't free, but they feel free. And I had to highlight that. <sighs> Apologies for the cough. That was unexpected. <laughs> so, um, so in this in this chapter, uh, John ends up kind of going crazy. He he sees this society and he hates it. He hates everything about it. He he's because he's basically seeing all of the all of the things that his society from the reservation, all of all of the things that he holds dear, basically just exasperated. They've been eliminated. They're not there anymore. They're not valued. They're not they're done away with. So everything that he's grown up to believe is in this world a lie and not how things are done so um he kind of goes crazy and ends up throwing soma rations out the window 
literally out the window. And Deltas go crazy because it was... He was in a factory where Deltas were working and... That doesn't matter. That's something you guys can read in the book. But um, I'm going to actually open the book to a specific page. Um, there's a couple of excerpts I want to go over. Because these last chapters um, are very have a lot of parallels. This is really where the book, honestly, this is really where the book gets super duper uh, juicy in a way, um, or it gets really interesting. And this is where a lot of parallels to, um, or um, this is the part of the book that everyone talks about on why you should read this book um, and where the strong parallels to current day, like us, Kind of get drawn so of course it does actual happiness always looks pretty squalid in comparison with the overcompensations of misery and of course stability isn't nearly so spectacular as instability and being commented as none of the glamour of a good fight against misfortune none of the pic picturesque of a struggle with temptation or a fatal overthrow of passion or doubt, happiness is never grand. And what he's what what that passage is saying is that's what the government wants. Happiness is not grand. They want that because they don't want an uprising. They want people to stay in that constant state of bliss. Because if people stay in that constant state of bliss, people don't bat an eye when certain things happen because they're happy. Continuing on, I suppose not, said the savage after a silence, but need, but need it be quite so bad as those twins? He paused, his hand over his eyes, as though he were trying to wipe away the remembered image of those long rows of identical midgets as the assembling, at the assembling tables, those queued up twin heads at the entrance to the Brentford monorail station. Those human maggots swarming round Linda's bed of death. The endlessly repeated face of his assailants. He looked at his bandaged left hand and shuddered. Horrible. And that is just him kind of... Everything's starting to catch up with him of what has happened so far in this new society. He is really starting to feel the blow of this. He doesn't, he doesn't like what he's seeing and he's... Um, made a scene which brought him to the Mustafa Mond, the head honcho's uh, desk, his office. So he's just talking with, with him personally, basically. And uh, they're just having a conversation. And that I think that really put it in perspective for him, for John. He's He sees this society, he doesn't like it, and he, he lashed out and as he's talking with Mustafa Mond, uh, Mustafa is really trying to um, describe what this society is and, and how it works and, and why it's doing what it's doing. And even Mustafa has been brainwashed to believe certain things and, and that this is how things should be. And, and John just is not having it. And in that uh, paragraph just really kind of highlights how he's feeling and, and how it's all starting to bubble to the surface. He's He's getting those feelings of like watching his mom get whipped because she had these ideals instilled in her when she lived in London and then came to the reservation. Um, 
he was always seen as an outcast and different and that's that's seen just as bad in in this reality in in london so um going forward in the book they talk about they're still having a conversation this whole last couple chapters basically is him just talking with mustafa bond john is so um, they talk about the nine-year war the nine years war they don't really talk about they don't say with who they're very vague about it's kind of fleeting but um it's uh i'll just read this little this little excerpt true ideas were beginning to change even then R. Ford himself did a great deal to shift the emphasis from truth and beauty to comfort and happiness. Mass production demanded the shift. Universal happiness keeps the wheels steadily turning. Truth and beauty can't. And of course, whenever the masses seized political power, then it was happiness rather than truth and beauty that mattered. Still, in spite of everything, unrestricted scientific research was still permitted. People still went on talking about truth and beauty as though they were the sovereign goods right up to the time of the nine years war that made them change their tune all right what's the point of truth or beauty or knowledge when the anthrax bombs are popping all around you that was when science first began to be controlled after the nine years war people were ready to have their appetites controlled then or people were ready to have even their appetites controlled then anything for a quiet life They've gone on controlling ever since. It hasn't been very good for truth, of course, but it's been very good for happiness. One can't have something for nothing. Happiness has got to be paid for. You're paying for it, Mr. Watson. Paying because you happen to be too much interested in beauty. I was too much interested in, too, in truth. I paid too. And that was from Mustafa Mond. He was, that was who was uh, talking right there. And... They don't say what the nine years war was or anything like that, but you get the gist of kind of what they're saying. And, and I thought this really kind of had a lot of parallels just to any war, honestly. It was, I mean, after any war, the winner and the loser, um, they they see the toll. The tally gets gets told up. They they see how many people died. They see what it accomplished. And, and for a lot of people, and this kind of happened a lot with like Vietnam, they saw, I mean, especially with Vietnam, they saw how many people died, and then they saw what American soldiers did to Vietnamese people, and they just they protested. They they did they didn't feel that it was worth what was sacrificed in terms of our brothers and sisters, and what we did to the opposition. And what they're drawing from that is basically the society hated everything that happened in the nine years war and they just wanted to be controlled they want they so desperately wanted to be happy that they gave up their entire freedom and i felt like that draw a very relevant parallel to what's going on with this with this virus with SARS-2 COVID-19 they they view it like people are so afraid and they just want to be safe. And, and that's giving government the opportunity to seize our freedoms and our liberties under the guise of being safe. Under the guise of making us safer. And people are drawn to that hook, line, and sinker. And they, they just want to feel safer. 
they're so afraid to die. They're so afraid that their loved ones are going to die, that they're going to give up all of their freedoms. So I just, that was just such a, such a powerful, such a powerful um, page in that book was, was that right there. Cause it, it, it made you think so much about like what's gone on in our nation's history in America's history and how wars have been fought and, and won and, and the aftermaths and, and how things slowly got to this tipping point. The savage nodded, frowning. You got rid of them, yes. That's just like you. Getting rid of everything unpleasant instead of learning to put up with it. Whether tis better in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing by posing in them you don't do either neither suffer nor oppose you just abolish the slings and arrows it's too easy and as you reach the end of this book there really is no climax it's just a steady plateau it, it peaks and there's peaks and valleys throughout this book but um it really is just kind of like a numbing it's almost like a numbing agent throughout this whole book you just you keep being fed this information and you just you kind of get a you get a first peak is a sustained disbelief when you realize that they're like um when you're in the fermentation like facility learning about how they're um, fertilizing embryos to be a certain way so you first like oh wow this is strange and effed up and then you kind of you reach that peak and then you see what else is going on you're like okay so i can see how they would do that and how they would do that and you get to this end where you realize that like you've been numbed this entire book to kind of being fed all this information that's just so crazy and so out there that you just you get to this point and you're like oh wow i've been numbed i've like been you've almost been kind of like played yourself you you see what they're doing, but you also don't at the same time. And that's what that passage kind of is saying. Like with this society, it's, they just, they keep their people, they keep their people happy. And, and that keeps them from suffering, but then that also keeps them from moving forward. That also keeps them from being able to feel true happiness. And that's from like feeling true happiness of really struggling to get something done. But instead, they just they keep them in a constant state of instant happiness. Like, sex brings instant happiness. Like, in the moment, sex is great. But over time, like, relationships with a woman or a man, like, building that relationship, getting married, having children together, like, that builds lasting happiness. And that builds a level of happiness that people who just search that, that surface level happiness of just sex will never feel. And that's what that passage is kind of describing is they, they keep they keep their people in a constant state of just surface level happiness. They don't they they abolish suffering, but they also abolish and oppose the the suffering that you withdoer or you um you endure to get to the true happiness. It's kind of like a runner running through the pain. Like they, they want to, this society wants to abolish that pain, but that pain brings unbelievable happiness when you push through it and win the race. So it's, um, 
The Savage, Hemholtz, and Bernard are all given their punishment. Bernard most likely will be going to Iceland. They don't say in the book, but it's implied. Hemholtz, after speaking with Mustafa Mont, decides to be put on the Falkland Islands. He views the rough environment there as a perfect place to write. And uh, Hemholtz is um, Bernard's friend. Um, he's a writer. And he's like a play writer for different plays and uh, stories and stuff. He believes that more impactful, happy, tragic writing will be brought out by going to a harsher environment. Uh, the rest of the final chapter is centers around the savage having a conversation about God and society with Mustafa Mon. And um, I'm not going to get into that because I, it is very good. So I want I'm, I'll leave that as kind of like a teaser for you guys to read this book. But um, Iceland is basically like a punishment. That's where people who aren't doing what they're supposed to, like researchers and scientists, they get sent to Iceland to research. And that's basically like a death sentence because there's nothing to research in Iceland. In, in this case, in this book, they kind of say Iceland has nothing to do. So they put people that they don't want causing any more trouble to Iceland. So, but I kind of went over all of my takes and everything that I wanted to say about this book. It's a really good book. Um, it's very eye-opening. Um, it It's very different than what you would expect. It's not how you would expect things to go in this book. You, you kind of go in because everyone always puts those big parallels between 1984 and this book. Um, and so many people know about 1984, whether it's through reading the book or hearing about the book or watching the movie. They kind of know what is in 1984 and then they think, oh, Brave New World is just like it. Well, it's not. It's it's very different. And and the big difference is, like I said before, it's it it gets the people in their society to believe that they're free. But they don't say they're free, and they never are. There is no freedom. There is no liberty in this in this book. It's just in a, a perpetual state of being surface level happy is what the society in this book has. And it shows how they've managed to get their people there and keep them there and how people just are okay with it. And in, in the eye, being the reader, from the eyes of the reader, you, you see and you draw those parallels that you get from this in the real world. And you kind of see how like governments could be doing this to us right now. So the big takeaway that I have for all of you who are listening to this and all of you who have slogged through this long episode, because I did go way over, I'm probably running up on like an hour and 10, hour and 15 minutes. But um, the big thing I just, that I get from this book that I really want to tell you is think critically about what's going on and really understand what your ideals are and what you hold true to yourself as an individual, not what your parents have instilled in you, not what society has instilled in you or your spouse or your friends or anything like that or your big influencers. Don't, what do you hold true? What do you believe in? And then from there, go forward with your life with those, keeping those intact. Thank you all so much for listening. My name is Sam. And this is the Shaped Ideas Podcast.